Father, we thank you for all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you desire to do this day, in this season, in this time, unique time in human history. Father, we thank you for the power of your spirit. We thank you for your word that is able to correct and guide and lead. And we pray this morning, Lord, for a stirring of our hearts. We pray for a fresh passion for you. We pray for open ears to hear what your spirit is saying. We pray more than anything else that the name of Jesus would be exalted that he would be glorified and that you would mold us and transform us as we behold the beauty of who you are to become more like you and shine the light of the glorious reality of the eternal God into an ever-darkening world. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is a birthday celebration, not our birthday, of course, not the church's birthday, not Vision Church, but the church. And birthdays, people either love them or hate them. And I won't ask which category you are in, but there's a bit of a love-hate tension, isn't there, sometimes as we reflect on another year that passes. But in many ways, it's important because it brings us back to the essence of who we are and how our stories all began. There's important reminders, and as we reflect on Pentecost Sunday, I'm always struck with this reality of here we are some 2,000 years later of a message of the gospel that has literally spread to the furthest corners of the world where still billions of people today proclaim faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we look back to how that began and it began with some 120 people just in a nondescript upper room, a room perhaps they'd managed to to get for a cheap price in the midst of Jerusalem as they tarried, as they waited. And these were people that in many ways were insignificant in the eyes of the world. They had no great wealth, success or prestige. They had no prominent buildings to meet and display as evidence of the Lord's favour. They had no detailed strategy as to how they were to accomplish this incredible commission that they've been given to spread the gospel. They had no social media followings or influential connections that could help them. In fact, they didn't even really seem to have a specific liturgy or format as they gathered other than just to pray and to seek the Lord, to come without any formal agenda in obedience to him, hungering for all that he might do through him. And yet that was the group of people, was it not? As the Holy Spirit was poured out in power in that upper room that God would use to literally turn the world upside down. And so we're going to reflect on that, but we're going to do that not by reading that particular account and passage. We're going to read another event in the book of Acts that remarkably mirrors the birth of the church and that first day of Pentecost. And I would suggest this, that not only does it underline the origins of the church, that first day of Pentecost, and all that that reveals to us, if anything, it gives that original event an even greater impetus. And that's our mission this morning, to discover what that is, and what that means for us some 2,000 years later. Are we ready? 
to go on this journey. Well, grab your Bibles, and we're going to pick up the story in chapter 10 and read from verse 25. Remembering, of course, we found ourselves last week in a place called Joppa. This sense of the undeniable timing of God, this transition in the book of Acts that the Lord is sovereignly orchestrating as there's dreams and visions and trances and angels. Undeniable timing, but this uncomfortable tension, particularly for Peter, as the Lord clearly deals with some issues that would not only be present in his life and theology, but in that of the early disciples, saying, we're doing a new thing, but first... There has to be a new mindset that will enable what he wants to do. And I was reflecting even this week, I had a, I thought it was a funny conversation with a couple who arrived here at the church, middle of the week, we were up in the office and the doorbell rings and obviously most of you would know that the building that we now meet in used to be a lighting shop and over the 18 months or so that we've been in here, regularly people have come in looking for lights. In fact, before we had the signage up and the builders were in here, even though the building had been gutted, they said to us at one point, please can you put some signs up because it's a demolition site and people are wandering in looking for, oh, where's the lighting store? Is it, is it here somewhere? So obviously the signs are up and we've been meeting here sometime for some time, but just on the, the back office entrance as the doorbell rang, I went down the stairs and there was a, I was going to say elderly couple, older than me, I don't want to get myself into trouble. But they were there, and I opened the door, and the first thing I got was no, hello, you know, is this a lighting store? It was just, oh, good, says the gentleman. And then he pulls out his phone, and he shows me a picture of his kitchen. He said, now, this is my kitchen, and these are the lights. I'm looking for some down lights here. He launches in this whole conversation. <laughs> and I paused and let him explain his kitchen, and I said, well, thank you for showing me the pictures of your kitchen. It's a lovely kitchen. Unfortunately, we're no longer, this is no longer a lighting store. I said, did you see the sign? And there's a sign on the office door and signs around the building. He's like, yes, I saw the sign, but I just thought maybe upstairs. Maybe, maybe, up, maybe there was some remnant of the lighting store left. And it's funny how stuck we can get in our own mindsets, isn't it? All the signs point to the contrary, but maybe upstairs, maybe hidden in a dark recess of the building still, and actually, we did think at one stage about possibly having a little side business of selling lights with the amount of people coming in looking for them. So Peter's been confronted. He's been stretched. He's had this incredible tension wrestling within him, but still had the sense to obey the Lord without, quench, uh, without question. And he's headed off to Caesarea to meet with Cornelius. Verse 24 of chapter 10, it says, On the following day, they, this is Peter and the six other brothers that accompanied him, entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them. They called together his relatives and his close friends. Verse 25, When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, Stand to, I am a man. Now it's interesting, isn't it? Even today you can go to corners of the globe and I've been there in certain uh, basilicas and uh, cathedrals where saints are literally worshipped, where people will perform particular rituals and actions. And I think, I wonder what the Apostle Peter would think of that. Because not just here, but continually they would direct people away from that, wouldn't they? So we're no sort of superman. In fact, when they performed the healing of the man at the temple, I said, we're just, we're just, this is not us. And in fact, their mission was always to point people to Jesus, wasn't it? That's what we're here for. 
There's no superstars. This is not about us. It's not about me. So don't worship me. Stand up. I'm just like you. We're just two people walking out this incredible journey of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, stand up. I too am a man. Verse 27. And he talked with him and he went in and found many persons gathered. So Cornelius has gathered. He's a centurion. So he has some authority, probably a hundred men under his command, and he's gathered together his household, his friends, and they're all packed in here to hear what it is that Peter is going to say. Verse 27, it says, or 28, he says to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection and I asked then why you sent for me. Now, don't read into this any sense of offense. Peter's not trying to say, you know, this is, this is not right. He's, he's pointing to the fact that this is clearly unusual. This is undeniably the Lord up to something, but this is outside the ordinary. This is uncomfortable. So, so what is it that God is doing? What has God shown you? Here's what God has shown me. And let's figure out and wrestle through together what it is that God wants to do through this divine appointment. So Cornelius says, Well, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house. The ninth hour, behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard, your arms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon at Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now therefore we're here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth, always one of his giftings, and he said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So you see the beginning of the cogs turning for Peter. Okay, I I clearly can see now this is what God is saying that I'm not to call anyone unclean who he has made clean, that whoever would call on him is worthy of having the gospel proclaimed. And that's exactly what he is going to do. He's going to bring the good news overtly to the Gentiles for the very first time in this particular setting and manner. He says this, As for the word he sent to Israel, verse 36, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourself know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up. On the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who'd been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now there's much as always, that we could examine in this particular passage. But suffice to say, it's a wonderful, succinct presentation of the gospel, as good as you'll find anywhere else 
He says, well, this is the message that Jesus came, that he ministered in power, that he was crucified, but God raised him up from the dead, and now we've been commanded, and all of Scripture points to this reality, that as we proclaim the gospel, that there's forgiveness in his name to all who would believe. Wonderful presentation of the gospel. For our purposes, that will suffice. It says, and I always love this little description here that Luke puts in there. Wonderful little details. He says, while Peter was still saying these things, literally, he hasn't wrapped up. He's perhaps at his last point. Maybe he had some more to share. We don't know. But literally, he's still speaking. And as he's still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. As the believers from among the circumcised who'd come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even upon the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues, extolling God. And Peter declares, verse 47, Can anyone therefore withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. And here we have the account, the gospel proclaimed, what accompanies the gospel is this undeniable outpouring, the evidence, the witness, the infilling of the Holy Spirit to the degree that Peter and his witnesses, six of seven in total, seven witnesses, important in and of itself, are evidence to what God had done to such a degree. They said, well, this is exactly what happened to us. And we could perhaps look at some differences between the day day of Pentecost and here. But for them, it was significant enough to say, well, this is exactly the Holy Spirit and the manner in which it came upon us. Therefore, how can we withhold from them baptism? And Peter commands in direct uh, recognition of the fact that they've come to faith, evidenced by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And as we always see in Scripture, the natural outflow then is the public witness and declaration, the full inclusion of these new believers into the body of Christ through baptism. Cannot underemphasize or overemphasize, cannot overemphasize the importance that baptism plays here as well. So we, we see this, there's no doubt there's these undeniable parallels with the original Pentecost. And just for a moment, I promised last week that I'd talk through very quickly some of the symbolism, which I think is important for us to understand. What is Pentecost then all about? And then we'll bring this back to the significance of, if you like, some would call it the Gentile Pentecost. I'd call this just a continuation of the original Pentecost, but this infilling of the Gentiles. And then finally, we will apply, hopefully, the reality of this to our lives. So what is Pentecost all about? We know Pentecost, well, hopefully most of us know Pentecost, what we know as Pentecost, was the Jewish Feast of Weeks, sometimes known as Shavuot. And one thing that is a wonderful study that's well worth your time is looking at some of these prophetic feasts and the prophetic indications all the way throughout Scripture that reveal the Lord's timepiece and the way in which He orchestrates. In fact, it says in Scripture that He is the God, and one of the ways we know He's the God, who calls the end from the beginning. He ordains the times and the seasons as signs for us. And so the Passover is a wonderful prophetic picture of, of course, the Lamb of God, as John proclaimed, that would take away the sins of the world. 
We see after Passover the resurrection, which is the, the feast of first fruits, which is the beginning of the harvest. And that brings us then to this additional feast. This is the Feast of Weeks. It's 50 days after the week of Passover. And it's, if you like, the end of the harvest. It's the main harvest, the first fruits, the resurrection of Jesus, representing the beginning, the first aspects of the harvest, and the centrality of Shavuot, or the fe- Feast of Weeks, is that it's a festival that's marked by the harvest. We might call it the main harvest, or we might call it the latter harvest. It's when the wheat is all brought in. It's all about harvest, this season and this celebration of the final ingathering. Some of the key aspects, and you'll see this actually in our display as well, if you haven't already had a look There's a number of elements there that are designed to just point us to what are some of the significant testimonies, witnesses, signs, pictures and reminders of this season of Pentecost, a feast that is connected and yet it's removed, the beginning and the end, if you like, of the harvest. Well, one aspect of this, and you can read this in Leviticus 23, is that an offering was to be bought a a wave offering, which was two loaves of bread, but this is the only time in all Scripture we, we see bread to be prepared with leaven. Remembering all the way through the New Testament, you read some of the parables that Jesus uses, we read this picture in Scripture of leaven being something that is to be uh, left outside, it's to be shunned, it's to be cleared out, it's to be separated from. And yet here in the, the Feast of Pentecost, there is two loaves to be brought as an offering before the Lord, both baked with leaven. So instantly we see this picture as Jesus had, or as the Lord had proclaimed to to Peter, saying, do not call unclean what I have made clean. There is this picture of bread baked where leaven is brought in and brought before the Lord as an offering of that which had been unclean being in and made clean with the full picture of an offering brought before the Lord in the midst of harvest. One of the common things that's done traditionally in this, this time of Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, is the Book of Ruth is read. Now, for those of us who were around last year, we did a study on the Book of Ruth, and I would say this again, as I said then, that I don't think you'll find a better picture anywhere in Scripture, Old or New Testament, of the redemption, God's redemptive purposes and his heart that we see throughout history. And how does that all end? How does this, this book of Ruth proclaiming the redemption of God end? It culminates at harvest time where the bride had made herself ready and the kinsman redeemer lays claim to his Gentile bride. And that's been read for thousands of years around this time, this picture of redemption culminating in an ingathering and in a bride who is claimed by the kinsman redeemer. One other picture, you'll see this here as well, is it has become traditionally known as a time where the Mosaic covenant, where the giving of the law is celebrated. So you'll see the the Torah, Torah is read from, the, the Mosaic law. And there's a lot of parallels here with that, trying to delve in too deeply. But of course, when the law was originally given, we saw this demonstration of the glory of God upon Mount Sinai. There was fire, there was thunderings, there was lightning, there was the glory of God present. And yet the result of the law coming in, and of course the people at the bottom of the mountain at that time were involved in pagan worship, they were worshipping the golden calf. And it says 3,000 people 
died that day. The giving of the law and the, the glory, manifestation of the glory of God in that sense brought death. And yet the day of Pentecost, we celebrate the Holy Spirit coming and infilling in this picture of life. And what is the result? Not 3,000 people dying, but 3,000 souls coming to life. And how is that accomplished? It's accomplished, as we said, through this upper room of 120 people filled with the very power and presence of God. Not an external law, but a law, as Jeremiah prophesied, that would be written on the hearts of his people. So there's these pictures of harvest, there's pictures of a mission, there's this story of redemption cultivating in a wedding of a bride who'd made herself ready, all of that to be accomplished through the outpouring, as Joel prophesied, of God's Spirit upon his people. Men, women, young, old servants, maid servants, filled with the power and the presence of God. Now there's much more that we could explore in that regard. Do have a look and... If you're interested, there's some wonderful resources I could point you towards. How does that then relate us to uh, the story we've just read of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the Gentiles? Well, primarily, there's two incredibly important aspects to this sign. Number one, it was a sign for the Jewish believers. And remember, that's what Peter's wrestling through, and he sees this sign, and all of them are amazed as the Holy Spirit comes. They're shocked. They're surprised. It says they weren't expecting this, and yet it was an undeniable sign that this was the Lord's intent and purpose. This was his mission. It wasn't just a gospel that was to be limited to the ingathering of a Jewish people. It wasn't just about them. This was a message that was always intended to spread to the corners of the world. It was all about, as Ruth actually proclaims, this culmination of a Gentile bride, of a kinsman redeemer. There's all these pictures that are so much broader than the little box that they'd put God in and his working. So it was an undeniable sign for the Jewish believers but it was also a sign for the Gentile believers that this was not some afterthought, that this was not some second-tiered salvation, that, well, the, the Jewish believers, the 120 in the upper room, they got the real deal, and then by the time we've filtered, you know, a few decades on, and it's a different people group, this is kind of like, it's like that, but it's a, a lesser version. It's toned down a little bit. This is God absolutely putting his stamp upon the Gentile believers and saying, this is exactly the same. There's no second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. It's the same gospel that's preached. It's the same spirit that comes upon them. It's the same salvation offered. It's the same baptism as the covenantal witness and sign of what God has done. That's what they say. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. This is exactly the same. So it's an important sign for both the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. And that then brings us to the final reality and aspect. Well, what does that all mean for us today? Nice story. We've talked about the elements of Pentecost. We've talked about this second reality, second experience, this event that so closely mirrors what happened in the original Pentecost that it's beyond coincidence. And I would make this point, and really this is where I want to land, this is what I believe is really essential for us to grab. See, here we have at arguably the most significant transition, as we talked about last week, 
in the book of Acts, a moment that will become the launching pad for the greatest missionary movement the world has ever seen, the gospel exploding throughout the Gentile world. And so what this underlines for us is, as I said, not only that the original event of Pentecost was important and essential, but that here at this transition, that what is important and what is essential is still exactly the same thing as that which with it all began. So this transition, as well as every other transition throughout church history, here is what it is all about. It starts with 120 people. It starts with a commission to go and preach the gospel, a little group of people insignificant in the eyes of the world, and the power of God in their midst. We see some years later, the next major transition here that happens. It starts with a room. There could have been a similar number of people. It says he's gathered his house. About a hundred odd people, just a, a Gentile centurion caught up in the, you know, the pagan systems and the, the politics of Rome. And yet he turns his heart towards God. He gathers his family. And how does God launch this new transition in the church? The gospel is preached and the Holy Spirit falls upon a group of hungry hearts. And this is what we see all the way through Scripture and all the way through church history. The characters shift as they will in the book of Acts. We'll move from Peter to Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and John Mark. Other people rise and come and go. Other tensions, other circumstances and seasons arrive. But there is this one undeniable reality that was there at the beginning, it's there here, it's there at every twist and turn, and it will be there until the Lord returns and calls us home. The thing that was needed at the beginning is the thing that we find right here, is the thing that we need today. It's the truth of his gospel, and it's the power of his spirit at work in the lives of his people. It's his power. It's what we need. We need and we can accomplish nothing without his power. Let me illustrate it this way. This is a moment of confession, but we're talking about birthdays, and both my wife and I actually have entered into a new decade within the last month or so. And I won't tell you what decade it is, because she might not be happy, but it's not our 50s, we're not that old. It's also not our 30s, we're not that young, so you can do the maths. I'll leave it to you. But we were celebrating a significant milestone, and I thought, what, what do you do to celebrate your 40th? And I'm not really a presents guy, but I thought, and I, I resisted as much as I could getting any sort of a, a smart watch. And in fact, Adam, who's had one for some years, whenever we play squash or do fitness, he often likes to show off his little smart watch and record all these little, you know, we're, we're doing this, we've done this many Ks, and, and I've held it off. I said, I, I don't want a smart watch, I don't want to go down that path, I'm happy just with my normal something, just give me something that tells the time. I resisted and I resisted, and then I think there was, the, the advertising's very clever, isn't it? Just the way they kind of get you in there. I think it was the ad of... There was the Apple Watch, and there was astronauts in space who were taking the blood oxygen level reading on their little Apple Watch. I said, that's it. I've got to have one of those. 
That is one function I cannot live without. And so I did. I succumbed. There was a moment of weakness, and I parted with my hard-earned cash and bought myself an Apple Watch. And look, there's some wonderful features there. We were on holidays, and I was out surfing, and all of a sudden my watch was ringing. And I thought, it's like something out of a spy movie, isn't it? Waiting for the next wave and having a little chat to my wife, and I don't know what you say, so over and out. It feels like something, I'm not sure, feel a bit strange. Anyway, but one thing I did discover is all of the ECGs and the, the fancy gadgets and everything else, there's one big limitation of the Apple iWatch, and it's a known one, it's out there, and the Apple iWatch is known to have a short battery life. So if you have none of the functions on, you might get through three or four days, certainly less than a week of battery time. If you try and use all of the functions on your smartwatch, and there's a lot of those to use, including checking blood levels in space, then you will be lucky to make it through 24 hours. So it needs to be charged each and every day. And as I soon discovered, you can have a watch that has all of the fancy features in the world, all of the cutting-edge technology, all of the potential... But if you don't have power, what have you got? You've got a very overpriced hunk of fancy but useless machinery. Some would probably argue that's what it is at the best of times. But nevertheless, there is the very same reality with us and with the church. We can have all of the fancy machinery. And how often do we throw our efforts and our energies into structures and programs and presentation and even this past week. And this is, this is something to be celebrated. It is on one level. But there's a church that we've had some history with and they're launching uh, a new church campus in the part of the US. And they said, we're going to do it well. And we've already got hundreds of thousands of dollars and we've got 300 people plus that are going to go and be a part of this church plant, and we're really wanting to see it done well. And that is all wonderful. It really is. I'm not saying we don't need any structure and any resources, and I'm thankful for the resources that we do have. What I am saying is may we never grow to a place where we think, you know what, we've probably passed that era and that stage of needing the power and presence of God. Maybe we can wean ourselves off a little bit We have got resources, we've got money, we've got intellect, we've got degrees, we have built up our social media followings, well some of us have, I've still not even figured out how to use it, but we've got everything that we need and the moment we're in that place, we forget the one thing that we cannot live without, cannot accomplish anything without and it's His power at work in the lives of his people. We got the worship team out. I want to leave us just with one final encouragement. And then we want to spend a moment just tarrying in the presence of God, just praying, just asking God again with hungry hearts. And I love those pictures of what, what marked them, 122 people of not great significance. But here's what defined them was a room of hungry hearts. He was Cornelius. We know very little about him. What was it that marked him and the households that he gathered? There they were gathered with hungry hearts. We're here, ready to hear whatever it is that you have to say. And what I love about both of those pictures is not only was it 
undeniably the power of God, but it was the power of God poured out on the people of God. And I kind of wonder if in that first upper room of 120 people as they, you know, sat there thinking, what's it going to look like? And it says, if we read the account in the book of Acts, it says, fire appeared in the room. It was almost like description is probably what they saw was this big flame, this big pillar. And it says it then separated and they saw this thing happening. And I think most of them were probably like, you know what, this is, this is amazing. This is probably Peter's moment. This is John's moment. This is the apostles. I mean, they've been hanging around Jesus. They're, they're about to get anointed and commissioned here. That's not what it says, is it? It doesn't say that it's separated and it sat upon just the ones who the Lord really thought he could accomplish something through. It says it rested upon all of them. And here as we read Cornelius' house, perhaps again they're thinking, well, we're just really here. I mean, Cornelius had a vision from an angel, like God's really doing something in him. We're just here to support him and see what the Lord wants to do in his life. And yet it says, as the Holy Spirit was poured out, who was it poured out upon? Not just Cornelius. It says each and every one of them, the young, the old, didn't matter what social background they were from, whether they were poor, whether they were wealthy, whether they were educated. And there's this wonderful picture as we remember not only the power of God, but His power poured out in the lives of His people. No longer is the kingdom a kingdom of superstars. All receive salvation. All are equipped. All are filled. All are called. That's our great need and His great desire is for us to be a people, not just the people on the stage, not just the ones who have certain roles within the life of our church. Each and every believer here this morning, everybody, who would call on His name to be filled with His power and His Spirit, to be equipped, to fulfill the mission that He has upon our lives together as His people. So can we stand? I want to pray for us. And then we're going to finish by just giving the Lord some some space and some room to do what He desires to do. But Father, thank you for Pentecost. Thank you for that very first moment that the church was born. As 120-odd hungry hearts stood there without agenda, without pretense, without great strategies, wealth, influence, just with hungry hearts to worship you, to pray and to seek all that you had for them. Well, thank you for the account we've read in, in Acts of Cornelius and his household. Such a similar paralleled example. Just a group of people with no other agenda. We're just, the Lord's said that you're going to do something. We're just here hungry to hear what it is that you say and the gospel's proclaimed and the power of the Spirit again is poured out upon them. And Lord, may we never lose that reality of our need for your touch and your grace. That without your spirit moving in our midst, all we are is an overpriced, fancy system that might look good, but ultimately is useless. But Lord, with your power and your spirit flowing through your people, your church is unstoppable. 
because they have the one thing that we cannot live without, the living God in their midst. So I pray, Lord, that you'd stir up a fresh hunger in our hearts, that desire to come before you without pretense, without any set ritual and routine, just acknowledging our need for you personally, our need for you corporately as a church, and our need desperately for your presence as your church and your body on the planet today. Lord, we need your spirit again. How we need your fire again as we've sung. We need your spirit to burn within us. We need your spirit to fill us. And Lord, we ask again for you to come and have your way fresh with us. In Jesus' name.